0: We're doing a Q and a session here with Mark Vernon. Uh, he's the author of a secret history of Christianity, Jesus, the last inkling and *The evolution of consciousness. Uh, thanks for joining us, Mark
1: very much for inviting me. Delighted to be talking.
0: So, um, how's the reception been uh, on the book so far? I know you've been doing a little bit of touring. I've seen some of the stuff on your YouTube channel. Um, how's that uh, how's the reception going
1: it's Going, it's going well i'm getting the sense that it it is um touching people it is making them intrigued um uh, particularly those who haven't heard of barfield before but or only very slightly maybe through cs lewis and the inklings um are thinking goodness me you know maybe this really has got something to offer for um understanding christianity now um opening things up again um so that that's that's pleasing i'm hoping there might be a, a review or two as well particularly in the uk religious press and that's yet to come but um you know my own efforts not least you know are talking um is 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 creating a, a hope a sense of word of mouth
0: now what kind of um i'm curious what 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 is your typical audience been like um is it more um Motivated or directed towards people that are kind of within the church or without um, um, Who do you see kind of taking up and being the most interested in the book?
1: I think it's going to be people who have some sense that Christianity matters um, But they're also very aware that um, the modern world um, Christianity doesn't automatically fit into the modern world um, and that um particularly I think um with a um, the sense of um the significance of Jesus now um, that um you know if say older accounts of salvation um don't feel uh, enough you know as if there's something in them but there's, they're not quite enough um, or alternatively um, people who are are very interested in um the way that History itself um, seems to be important, um, not just as it were that there was a moment in history where um, this figure of Jesus appeared, um, but that in a way what's happened since, um, which links to the the idea that Barfield um, wrote so much about the evolution of consciousness. Um, so it's it's give Christians I think mostly um, who are seeking um, a new kind of relevance. For Christianity, particularly in the West, um, aware that it's, it, it seems to be um, falling away for many people, um, and and only being reasserted in in you know in relatively literal ways perhaps, um, which they don't find wholly satisfying. Um, to put it another way, perhaps people who are aware that um, the criticisms of religion that arise broadly speaking from the scientific materialism, the scientific worldview. um, They have a sense that um, the way to respond to that is not to try and do a kind of Christian apologetics um, that defends, say, um, the veracity of the resurrection, um, which they get a sense that this feels like a kind of never ending effort to try and keep the doctrine propped up. um, And that's not really going to work. Um, but rather, they want a sense that maybe scientific materialism itself um, is too narrow—a sense of reality, a view of reality. I mean, that what's really required is a re-expansion of our our sense of of the way things are in the world, in ourselves, the cosmos, in relation to the divine. Um, and Barfield is so brilliant because he provides a way um, that both touches material reality as we know it, um, but opens it onto a wider spiritual reality. Um, so it kind of has this expansive sense. Um, he, he's neither trying to, as well, just dismiss scientific materialism, um, but nor is he just thinking that we can only operate within what scientific materialism says about the way things are.
0: Yeah, so for, for those who are completely unfamiliar with Barfield or just kind of dipping their toe in the water with him, could you... Just lay out kind of a, a brief definition for for how you see those those concepts of like, say, original participation and and final participation.
1: So Barfield, um, he wasn't own, alone in this, but Barfield, to my mind, developed a very compelling account of how the evolution of consciousness changes. And by that, he meant that human beings over time, over periods of cultural time, particularly, so over centuries, have very different perceptions of of the world, themselves, nature, the cosmos and gods. And in particular, because he tracked this through his study of words, and which I particularly like because, you know, this is an evidential approach as well as a felt perceptual approach. Um, He noticed how words say as used in ancient Greek texts like Homer's texts or say in the oldest bits of the Hebrew Bible, um, how they suggest that people back then say 3000 years ago Mm -hmm. experienced life as a kind of flow or flood even of meaning, Um, that they didn't have a a sense really of themselves at all as separate from others, separate from nature, separate from the gods, but that rather the task of life back then was to negotiate this kind of flow of meaning. It was a much more collective sense, very sophisticated in its own way, but a much more collective sense. Um, And that gradually, as he put it, um, this uh, flow of meaning withdrew from people's immediate perceptions of life. Um, And people felt at different times and in different ways alienated from the world around them. Um, This has the downside of alienation. He called it a withdrawal of participation, but it has the upside that um, one's own sense of interiority and individuality develops. And he thought that what can happen is that with that intensification of your own inner life, um, that is a new source of life that can then flow out back into the world. um, To use a kind of Christian notion that, that the spirit um, that you once breathed in can be breathed out once more, um, and that life um, can return, um, the new perception of the inner life of all things can return, but with the difference that it's based on your own inner life, your own inner vitality, and that introduces um, a new kind of freedom into the world. Um, and there's a lot more that could be said about this, but he really thought that was the key to the Christian dispensation, um, that it's a new kind of freedom that's catalyzed by the person of Jesus and um, that becomes available to us all
0: so i know in in barfield's writing the, he he kind of communicates this very strong sense that quite a bit is writing on this sort of uh humanity's discovery of of final participation in some sense like there's a and i'm i'm curious if you have some thoughts on on kind of Barfield's view of, um, I don't know, say, say, uh, you know, the Christian version of the apocalypse and and things of that nature, because it, it's almost a sense in which he seems to think that, uh, perhaps maybe that God is in some sense voluntarily beholden himself to kind of partnering with humanity and that we, that we need, there's this turn that we need to make. Otherwise, civilization has it itself is in some sort of jeopardy. Um, would you would you agree with that characterization? Or how would you say that you think Barfield sees that?
1: It's quite it's complicated. And that there are, I think, different valid ways of talking about this, um, which I think is generally the case for spiritual truths, um, because different ways of talking about it capture different aspects of something that we're still evolving towards. Um, but broadly speaking, um I think Barfield felt that um creation itself is an outpouring from the divine, from spiritual reality. and as that outpouring unfolds, um so particularly material reality as we know it, most immediately anyway, um, becomes more and more well defined, um, which has its own advantages. um so for example, um, you know, we as individuals can know ourselves in particular times and places, which key clearly is very, very key to our sense of being persons, to being individuals as we are. Um, you know, we're definitely speaking in 2019. And with all of that implies, for example, you know, using the internet in the way that we are. Um, but it has the disadvantage that um, spiritual reality can feel um, distant, uh, maybe even absent now, it's possible for, to, for people to feel that. Um, you know, quite obviously. Um, So um, what he felt, I think is that um, the return to the divine, which um, I don't think he saw it in apocalyptic terms, um, in say that the the way that it's certainly clear in in some strands of Christianity, I think he saw it much more in, say, Johannine terms, you know, the Gospel of John doesn't have apocalyptic material, but instead talks about the light coming into the world. Um, that's the light of all people, um the logos um that uh, that underpins the world, that shapes and forms and creates the world, as it were, it invites us to become co-creators, co-participants um with that um with that uh, life. Um, and that this is the dis- this is the kind of moment that we're in now um that having uh, uh, been created by the logos, we're being invited to. Rediscover the logos so that we can, and uh, not just as a word, be dragged back um, uh, or uh, uh, saved by a kind of a divine intervention in which we have no part. Um, I think that that God's plan, you might say, is much more sophisticated than that, and um, that God wants um, us to to know the divine in ourselves, to be to re- rediscover our spiritual nature, which is there all along, and so be swept back up into a divine vision, um, holy ourselves. Um, as well as wholly at one with divine purposes once again. Um, so um, it's not such a catastrophic vision of things um, in the sort of apocalyptic sense. Um, it's much, it, but it is nonetheless a kind of struggle and it is tricky that we're, we are, we're called um, to participate in this with everything that we've got, you know, to sort of stake our lives on it. Um, and because there's nothing less than all of us um, that um, that God wants to draw back to himself. Um, by our becoming aware of the logos um through the evolution evolution of our own perceptions i think it, it it's something like that that barfield talked about um the future um a future participation
0: yeah he does though i i mean i guess i i i read maybe i'm reading into this too much but he he seems to be pointing that like if there's there's a somewhat of a fear in him that like you know where we have this certain trend line right now that he's he's analyzing that we're we're we're, per, we're turning further and further away from the divine in some sense, and that there's almost a fear that if we don't course correct, that you know we'll get to this point where, in some sense, the the divine is is some important component of even our ability to communicate with one another. That we'll that we'll lose that that even like our sense of what. He calls the collective representations um it requires this sort of commune with with the divine consciousness for us to have any ability to really communicate to not have our own little private worlds that are isolated from everybody else and um you know i'm i'm just curious um you know do you like where, where do you see us at in in this process and like you know um do you see any sort of trends in positively in the other direction that um, um, are possibly, you know, the tide is turning.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Barfield was writing um, at what you might call sort of peak mechanical consciousness. Um, so in psychology, certainly in the West, for much of his life, it was dominated by behaviorism, which tried to, to treat human beings' psyches as if they were machines, you know, kind of sort of cause effect response machines. Um, Clearly, you know, he knew both the First and the Second World Wars and saw Europe in complete meltdown. Um, I think that um, he also, he saw, I think, a struggle in science. On the one hand, I think he saw the dominance of a very mechanistic version of Darwinism um, that came to the fore, but he also, of course, saw the revolution in physics, the end of a mechanical physics with the birth of quantum mechanics, particularly. Um, which whilst it's still debated very heavily what that means in terms of reality itself, um, it certainly has completely disturbed the old ideas about mechanical physics. Um, you know, Probability is the way that you deal with reality if you're a physicist now, not just push and pull of Newton's second law of motion. Um, so I think that he both saw the real tragedy of um, the world in the 20th century Um, But I think he began, he did also see um, signs of a turn, Um, you know, he he did talk about being at the bottom of a a sort of U-shape, but seeing signs of a turn. So whilst I thought, I think he did see it as really, really serious, um, and that the meaning crisis really is a crisis, and the rediscovery of meaning um, is not remotely straightforward. um, I think that he did see the signs of a renewed participation. I mean, had he lived um, a little bit longer, I think that he would have, for example, looked at the ecological crisis, which now has become very pressing, as both the potential for disaster, but also um, the moment where a new ecological awareness arises. And that's really significant because it's an ecological awareness that's not just about being aware that we share this planet in all sorts of um, carefully crafted systems and so on. Um, but it's an awareness that there's a kind of intelligence embedded in nature Um, and it's when you start to perceive of the world around you as carrying sort of qualities that we normally associate with people like intelligence um, that uh, you're starting I think to get back to a a participation which he felt that our, our ancient ancestors just felt immediately.
0: Um, here in Paul's community, a lot of people have been following along with, um, a series of lectures that have been being given by, uh, John Verveke. Um, I'm curious if, have have you, um, and they're all on this, this topic of the meaning crisis is kind of what he's been working through. I'm I'm curious, have you had any engagement with his work or, or see any parallels with, um, you know, specifically what you're, you're writing about here and, or, you know, what Barfield was working on?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, uh, I haven't watched them all, but I certainly have watched a number of John Viveki's, um discussions and really enjoyed them. You know, they're incredibly rich. Um, what my overall sense, and I, I, I'm i happy to stand corrected here um, if this isn't the case because I haven't watched them all, but my overall sense is that um, Viveki is working from a point of view which is quite widespread, which is recognising there's a meaning crisis, but feeling that it's... Um, the human task alone to try and find a way out of the meaning crisis, to, as it were, pull ourselves back up by our own bootstraps. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is sort of fundamentally a, a flawed approach. A lot can be learned on the way, um, but I think it's fundamentally flawed. Um, and Barfield would definitely say this. He would, he would call it um, something like um, a residual unresolved positivism. And instead, um, he would say that it's not that that's, that kind of task is completely worthless, um, but it, it won't achieve its aims unless it also um, realizes that the task is not just to lift ourselves up, but is to become reconnected to the the consciousness that's all around us. And this is where the imagination for him is so important and why he is um, very much part of the romantic strand that John Viveki talks about. Um, that the imagination is that part of our inner vitality that can, as it were, leap out of ourselves and rediscover the vitality that's around us in a kind of inspiration that comes back at us. Um, the, the, the one talk uh, of Vavakis, which um, I've, I've, I, was, I listened to very keenly, was the one he, he, when he talked about the Romantic tradition. Um, and I think what he didn't give the Romantic tradition enough credence of is that it had overcome the Kantian problem of knowing the thing in itself. I think figures like Coleridge and others through the sense of the imagination and they did um, answer Kant's problem about how we can know the noumenal as well as the phenomenal Um, and uh, for me for me that's the strand that needs to be picked up and and developed and amplified not just as it were the turn inwards with talk of psychotechnologies and so on um, which are sort of invigorating it I mean you know the human mind in itself is quite a fascinating thing um, but at the end of the day, I think we need to recognize that the human mind is not at our skulls in kind of splendid isolation or even in groups of, of skulls knocking together, um, but that it is embedded in an intelligence that is in the in the cosmos itself.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that is a fair um, kind of characterization of of Vakie's views. One of um, his uh students had a conversation his name was christopher mastro-pietro had a conversation with paul where he he kind of hauntingly pointed out that you know in light of john's work that we're we're kind of living in the afterglow of a dying star with the with the dying star being you know this this uh, christianity that that we're, we still have kind of some light and warmth from but that's going away and that we have to kind of invent something new so i think you're right in, in characterizing this like, we got to now pull up our, ourselves by our own bootstraps and, and start it anew, which uh, I think is, is um, it's in some sense, it only accentuates more the meaning crisis, the idea that we got to, we got to go invent a new religion really fast.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think you, you see it in the kind of proliferation of um, say um, approaches in the cognitive sciences um, essentially, you, you can. I think you can always sort of sense when people fear that they're skating across a void um, because they can't actually rest. Um, there's no space, for example, for for silence um, and for listening, for attending. It's all about trying to grasp and understand and, and, and capture. Um, it's it's very much in the feel of it as well as it is um, in um, the sort of logic of it.
0: Yeah. So could you, you know, one of the things that becomes interesting to talk about with, with Barfield is his specific definition of the imagination that you kind of picked up on in your last response. Um, could you go into some more detail about how he saw it? Because and again, I think this is something within the modern rational frame. Uh, imagination kind of has this sense of um, of whimsy and, and fancy and I think, you know, Barfield was was getting on something completely different when he refers to the imagination.
1: Yeah, I mean he broadly used um the Coleridge and you know the the the, the Samuel Taylor Coleridge um distinction between fantasy and imagination proper. Um and Coleridge um and this is slightly my take on it as a psychotherapist, because I think this is also how it works in psychotherapy. Um but in this romantic tradition, um broadly speaking, it's recognized that um our minds if you like our inner lives are kind of like fantasy generators um, we do it all day every day it's how we kind of find our way through the world by um not just um sort of perceiving directly but um using past experience cultural experience um etc etc um to to already sort of load um, our perceptions with meaning um, but often those meanings are mistaken Um, I mean sometimes they're just a bit too limited because they're shaped by our culture or our past too much and sometimes they're just plain wrong Um, but what Coderidge said is that you can tell when fantasy is moving into what he called imagination proper and because um, it itself becomes generative it itself becomes creative and it takes you to new places it opens up the world and and expands your own sense of life So, for example, I mean, I think Einstein was onto this. Einstein was very interested in the imagination because um, his discoveries, which became tangible science, you know, empirically based science and so on. But they began with imaginative exercises when, for example, he imagined riding on the beam of a light wave and what that might be like. Um, Now, that sounds like a sort of childish fantasy. And and, and Einstein did actually say you need something of the childlike to be a good scientist. Um, But the point is, is it really took him somewhere to pursue that fantasy. And so he said it became imagination proper, that out of that imagination could it almost like you can imagine dropping bits of scientific knowledge um, that then become uh, very particular um, entities, objects that you can develop and prove in all sorts of ways. Um, but imagination proper is when it really takes you somewhere where where it becomes productive in itself. And then Coleridge and Barfield add the extra layer is that the reason why imagination proper um, becomes creative and lasting is because it's an echo of the divine imagination. Um, Others like William Blake have said this too, and that they recognise that uh, the divine creative act is itself a kind of imaginative outflow and imaginative outpouring. Um, But with the divine, it's always productive, it's always creative, and it always leads to more. Um, but we can share in that imaginative activity too. Um, you know, we do it to some degree, even when we speak, and when a word feels like it really captures a moment, uh, maybe it's a poetic word, and that's an echo of, of the Logos's activity in creation, constantly amplifying, rejoicing, taking pleasure in discovering new aspects of reality, that, that sort of expansive sense of the imagination, and not just fantasy as a kind of whim, which may be amusing, but almost immediately sort of falls, um, you know, falls flat.
0: Yeah. I, I, I think you went into this in some detail in your last, uh, chapter in, in the, um, in your book, which was, we must be mystics, which I I really enjoyed a lot. There's, there's quite a bit packed in there in terms of trying to look at how we can use the imagination in a way that, that we can have, it's, again, not some sort of whimsical fancy, but something that's actually in contact with reality. Um, I'm curious, you know, do you have any plans to, to write any more about this, this topic moving into the future? Because it seems like you're kind of just doing this wide exploration, and then you get to the final chapter, and you really have a lot packed in there about, you know, what your response to it is. I'm curious if you would, would be looking to write more about it.
1: I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's all work in progress for me, of course. Um, and uh, I think that what I wanted, hope to achieve in the last chapter was to give people a sort of felt sense that they can know the activity of the Logos in their own lives through um, the operation of the imagination. Um, and it's, um, it's, you know, for example, C.S. Lewis was onto this too, that it's when, for example, you hear music, Think about what's actually going on in music, which is very remarkable that something that's purely acoustic in terms of the science, um, you know, the the vibrations in the air, um, the minute you perceive them, they're, you know, already massively enriched, um, you know, because you hear music, you hear tunes, you hear harmonies, you hear melodies, you hear discord, it's pleasant, it's unpleasant, Um, and then, of course, it also carries emotion and, and may soothe you, console you invite you to new experiences of reality. Um, you know, so this is something that happens all day, every day, but um, you have to turn your attention to it, unpack it a bit to realize that you're already immersed um, in this participation in life. Um, I, th- I mean, I think Barfield also got this from Steiner. Um, Rudolf Steiner is someone that I'm grappling with too. I don't mention Steiner in my book because I just felt I couldn't write about him at great length. Um, but one of the things which I had gleaned from Steiner is that um, it's when you um, not just have an experience and recognize that you're an experience, experiencer of an experience, but when you reflect on the nature of experiencing itself, that's when a kind of inner life opens up um, and it becomes uh, a reality that you can return to time and time again and develop. Um, so I was hoping that my reflections um, on, on imagination in my last chapter would, um, would, would sort of show as well as convince people who are broadly in the Christian tradition, and um, that this is something that's happening already, and kind of awaken them to that. It, it's, it's what, I, I think it's what the incarnation means now. Um, that if the incarnation is not just something that happened 2,000 years ago, but is the constant operation of the Logos in creation, in our own lives, um, inner lives and the inner lives of all things, um, that becoming aware of how the imagination brings everything to life is to become aware of how the incarnation brings everything to life in fact and it's it's ongoing now um and so that that fi- that feels to me to be the first absolutely crucial step and the minute you can take that step other things can unfold um it, it was this, the first crucial step i really need to take as well and to sort of try and get uh, clear in my own sense um so that's why the book um kind of finishes with with that
0: interesting yeah so speaking of spiner um josh just asked in in the q a chat um he's curious what ways in which you think barfield was in agreement with um anthroposophy and and uh, um where maybe he differed or because I, I know you know even later in life you know after he had joined the, the church of england and was you know a confirmed uh, anglican he still would would recommend Steiner pretty much to everybody, um, and and kind of still had had a sense in which Steiner was had some sort of practical means of elaborating on what he was um, what he was kind of uh, I guess dealing with in a more theoretical sense with some of his writings.
1: Yeah, uh, um, I mean, I th- you know, Barfield does even in the books where he hardly mentions Steiner, like saving the appearances and poetic diction, he will say, you know, I've Discovered what I've discovered through my own ways, particularly study of words. Um, but Steiner has discovered it too, sort of enfold. Um, and so he would recommend looking at Steiner's work. Um, I think Barfield, for me, has the advantage that um, uh, he he writes in a way which um, is more accessible um, because he's writing about consciousness, he's writing about words um, rather than the Steiner writes in two modes broadly one is quite abstract philosophy um which you know is quite analytical really which uh requires a certain a mindset and um, but then also um particularly later more more lately Steiner writes in these very esoteric ways um which are are often just very hard to to know what to make sense of I I think um, and it to my mind has had the slightly unfortunate effect that uh, um Anthroposophy can often take on a rather dogmatic feel because people fall back on quoting Steiner, you know, and rather than I think really knowing what Steiner was was experiencing from the inside themselves. And I think that Barfield did though, that Barfield um, recognized that he should mostly write uh, from what he knew himself. um, And that's why he, um, I think, can both be on the same page as Steiner. Um, but uh, be more accessible um, than a lot of anthroposophical writing. Um you know, Stein himself said this. I mean, this is this is no discredit to Steiner. He said he did not want followers. He wanted people who um, experienced this too. And I think in a way, you might say that Barfield was a true follower of Steiner in that sense, um that he did he did stick to that. Um every so often, in some of his less known writings, Barfield will, um, it, it it develops the feel where he's more reporting what Steiner said. So, for example, he wrote a dialogue called *An Ancestral Voice, where you can sort of almost see Barfield tussling, wrestling with with what, what Steiner had said to see whether he can bring it alive in his own way. Um, and he he sort of does and he doesn't in that book, um, to my mind anyway. Um, but the the crucial thing is to know it yourself. this is where the freedom lies. you know, both Steiner and barfields and and others too Blake who, who are on to, on a very similar page, I think William Blake. Um, the point is to be spiritually free yourself to know this for yourself. Um, and if you uh, turn to writings and and try to sort of imitate them or adopt them as if they're almost uh, sets of creeds or doctrines, um, then you know develops this feel of of not being free actually. Um, and uh, so I think Barfield was very aware of that in the anthroposophical community, you know it divided after Steiner died, um, particularly in Britain there were there was uh, um, sort of inter um, disputes um, and whilst he certainly did write lots for anthroposophical publications, my sense is at least that he um, he didn't get completely absorbed in that um, and that um, he, he couldn't in a way because his wife uh, Maud and also his friendship with C.S. Lewis um kept him uh, you know firmly plugged into other circles as well which perhaps was a good thing although i've no doubt that it was a very hu- hu- difficult tension to bear at times
0: i'm i'm curious too about um i know um, you've also written on on Carl Jung and i'm i'm curious if you see any interaction or or um, similarities between what what some of what Jung was doing what Warfield is doing. You know, um, specifically, you know, I know in, in certain books, like in Saving the Appearances, <clears throat> Barfield kind of almost points at Jung in terms of his idea of the collective unconscious and, and his idea of um, of what he would call the collective representations as being sort of a collective conscious, that uh, that he, he kind of was chiding people that they would be willing to accept the, the collective unconscious, but but not have this sense of the collective conscious. Um, And also their ideas about, you know, how you would how you use imagination as a a means of exploration and and discovery. Um, Do you see any any kind of parallels in terms of um, of their thinking?
1: I think there are. I mean, I think that that Barfield saying saving the appearances, I think it is. He does say he recognizes that psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, analytical psychology, which is the sort of Jungian version of it. Um, is beneficial to people, particularly therapeutically. Um, But I think he remained wary of it as a spiritual undertaking. I think because he felt that in Jung, there's a kind of unresolved Kantianism, um, that Jung can be like this at times, he can seem to be a very good Kantian um, in the sense that he'll talk about the archetypes that populate the collective unconscious. um, But he'll say we can never know the archetypes in themselves we only ever know how they manifest to us, um, which is when they interact with our own psyches. And so say we put flesh on the bones of the archetype of the mother or flesh on the bones of the archetype of the trickster, um, that we can never know the thing in itself. Um, and for Barfield, that would be the collective unconscious rather than the collective conscious, which he was much more pressing towards. Um, and so that when, when, when Jung's like that, um, I think that, that Barfield becomes critical. Um, but you know Jung is a slippery fish as well and other times he will say uh, much more directly um, that he does know the thing in itself you know he doesn't believe he knows um, he famously says on, on occasions um, and that whilst in one mode he is being an empiricist um, and a scientist um, which is broadly Kantian in its approach just looking at the phenomena looking at the behavior gathering the evidence um, in another mode Um, he will say that he does engage with a thing in itself and and this has become much clearer since the red book Jung's famous great work was was published and where clearly he goes on his own esoteric journey um, and um, was drawing directly on his own spiritual experience where he encounters intelligences he encounters spiritual beings Um, I think you know Jung was trying to straggle worlds um, he was drawing on his own personal experience and trying to devise a psychology for the 20th, 20th and now 21st century um, that could be widely utilized without necessarily having to have the direct spiritual experiences. You know, to be fair to Jung, partly because he realized many people wouldn't be able to access that very directly. And so they need some sort of intermediate discipline. Um, and, and for Jung, this is to, to come back to the imagination, this is where. Um, the imagination comes in in Jung um, that Jung too um, argued that people should um, as he puts it amplify the imagination you know if you have a dream stay with the imagery of the dream and and go back into it let the characters in the dream live see where they go see if they take on a life of their own Um, and whilst Jung and Steiner um, were not at all friendly towards one another they could say quite rude things about each other at times um, nonetheless, I think that they were onto the same thing ultimately—that um, um, this use of the imagination, use of the amplification, so that the in, the contents of the psyche start to take on a life of their own, um, entering into that world. I think that they're both on the same terrain there, and that modern psychotherapy does this quite routinely. It wouldn't necessarily talk about it in those terms, um, but the way that one tries to use images. Ah, uh, play would be another word that has come in certainly into british psycho psychotherapy. Um, that's what this is all about. Um, and um, for many people, that takes them into an encounter with spiritual reality that has its own objectivity as well.
0: Very good. Um, I have a question here um, that uh, was forwarded to me by uh, Ilif. He adds, he noted in your last conversation with with Paul, you had a a comment towards the end where you were saying something about life's mysteries are a preparation for for what comes next um and he was he was curious if you could elaborate on that some more yeah well
1: it's 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 my intimations um my imagination letting that run with me a little bit um but you know if I think part of our task in this life um, is to perceive more and more of the world around us, reality around us. Um, And the reason why it's a task for life is because it is um, a working on yourself. Um, It's this this strange dialectic of both understanding yourself um, and and coming to know yourself more and more and more, particularly in your inner life. Um, But at the same time, that process is at once a dying to yourself. To use the Christian terms because um, you start to realize there's more going on than just yourself um, when you can get over yourself to some degree let go of yourself Um, though that letting go I think requires first of all to have a keen sense of what you're trying to let go of um, otherwise it just becomes a kind of denigration of the self Um, so that process which takes place throughout life if it if it's an expansion of if it leads to an expansion of our perception of reality here and now, and um, both in terms of nature and in terms of the divine, and then the spiritual ecology that I think exists um, in the world around us too, um, then that must be I think a preparation for the next life. Um, I mean, I, I get this actually not only from Barfield, but I think that it was a perception that's in um, the Platonic tradition, particularly in Socrates. I mean, if you read, say, the Apology. Um, which is one of the Platonic dialogues that accounts, that relates um, the Socratic experience of approaching death, um, then it seems to me that Plato is clearly saying that Socrates had as it were one foot in this life and one foot in the next life, um, and that the reason why he could approach death with equanimity is because he was already half living in the next world, um, that was also here, he was still here. And I think that that actually is a, a perception of Christian mysticism, too, that heaven is not another place um, heaven is is here already. And that we're asked, invited to prepare ourselves for the next life by increasingly realizing that it's here, too. Um, and so um, death loses its sting um, it is a kind of transition uh, rather than uh, a complete um, interruption. Um, so that that's 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 the way that both through my reading and, you know, in its very limited sense, um, my my sense of, of life unfolding, uh, too, um, that's the direction in which it's kind of headed. Um, it's not it's not a it's not a a um, a universal Christian perception of things. You know, um, the more apocalyptic, the more. Um, uh, we will sleep and then rise approaches in Christianity would see death as, a, as an abrupt end um, which were wholly reliant upon the intervention of the divine um, to rescue us from um, that would be another approach so it's a real absolute dying and then a, a real absolute rising you know in a rather more literal sense um, uh, but I think that there's something always more subtle going on when you start to get into the spiritual reading of these these things this dying and this rising you know in one way at the end of the day of course it all depends upon the divine all life depends upon the divine but i do think that it's very strong christian mysticism and other spiritual traditions that one of the key things about being human is that we're asked to become co-workers um to 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 recognize the spirit within us the logos within us that's the tremendous invitation and, and I think that that even includes the perception of what it might be to die and rise in the here and now too
0: interesting something you said in there reminded me um of a, of a recent lecture I, I heard on um on the topic of wonder and uh, this guy gave a basically a, a lecture where he, he talks about you know plato's um, says that philosophy begins in wonder and that basically you know kind of in our in our Somewhat within the scientism of our current age, we often see kind of wonder as this sort of naive imperfection to be overcome. Um, but he was kind of making the case that, you know, if there is some sort of great mystery at the heart of everything, that as you get closer and closer to that mystery, that the wonder might would rather deepen rather than than go away. Um, and um I'm curious because you, you mentioned this in the book as that we could see science as kind of a vehicle for re-enchanting the world, rather as what it has become to many people kind of a, a disenchantment, a, a kind of we know everything, and uh, those that, that still have that kind of childlike wonder are kind of on the wrong path. Um, in, any comment there?
1: I mean, I think wonder does increase with understanding. So Aristotle's remark is that... Um, uh, you know that the knowledge and philosophy begins in wonder and ends in wonder, but it's not the same wonder. It's a much more nuanced, greatly expanded, more granulated, enriched wonder. Um, uh, you know it's it's the wonder when you think about music, um you know you can go to a uh, hear a great symphony performed and it can be wonderful. but when you start to contemplate what it took to say put that performance on, Um, that increases the wonder. When you start to think about the nature of music, you know, how it's not just an acoustic phenomenon on the airwaves, uh, but that somehow conveys this meaning, that increases the wonder. When you know something about the composer and what they were trying to do, where they were coming from, how it fits in with history of music and so on, music appreciation, that increases the wonder. Um, So, you know, this is not so surprising when you think about it. And I think science can very much serve that purpose as well. Um, You know, one of of the problems that science has has got into, I think often certainly in the public space anyway, is that it it sort of has set itself against um, older forms of knowledge and particularly Christianity in the West. Um, And so there is a bit of a tendency to think that science only succeeds when it supplants older forms of knowledge. Um, But really, the minute you start talking to scientists I know anyway, that, that's not really what they're thinking, um, they're, they're, you know, because they're living human lives at the end of the day. They're still going home and loving their families and uh, going to concerts at the weekends and so on. Um, and, and even in a, in a writer like Richard Dawkins, who clearly can get you know, on his hobby horse about religion and just hates it, period. Um, you know, when he writes about science um, and forgets his hatred of religion, um, it's packed with wonder. Um, you know, he, that's why he's such a great writer. As well as um, the sort of bet noir of of, of religion, um, yeah. So um, it, it's all about, it's, it, you know, to use the Blakeian phrase, it's about using fourfold vision, um, you know, which is sensing and reasoning, but also intuition and feeling, um, that kind of deep sense of the way things are. Um, uh, it's when all that comes together um, that, that life grows.
0: We have a question in the chat here from, from Um, he says, um, any thoughts on how this corresponds with the Paradiso by Dante and the concept of understanding the divine essence as the overall purpose to the earthy life in the medieval co- cosmology?
1: Uh, well, I mean, I increasingly feel that Dante, um, is a forerunner of all this. Um, and that particularly in the paradise, Um, He is showing us a lot of these things already, actually. Um, It's very interesting to me that often when Dante's discussed in the modern world, people kind of get into the inferno, they get into the purgatorio, um, but when it comes to the paradiso, they sort of pull back and can't make sense of it. But um, I've been very greatly helped um, in in reading Dante's divine comedy, particularly the paradise um, through the Temenos Academy, an organization here in London. Um, and particularly um, with the guidance of Jeremy Nagler Um, and it's very clear that what's happening in the paradise I think is that as Dante ascends through the different heavens and then beyond the heavens into the divine imperium itself um, he ascends only because he is increasingly able to perceive um, that seeing and rising go hand in hand so Dante's consciousness is evolving all the way through the paradise Um, you know so for example um, he has to learn to see how the one relates to the many and the more and more that he can see how the the two aspects are in harmony the higher he can rise Um, so at first he's quite surprised to see whole souls um, say in in the heaven of the moon the first heaven that he enters into and and he he asks lots of questions but you know how come you're here but you're also up with the divine in the highest heaven, you know, what's that about? And and how come that you're a person that I knew on earth as well as a person in heaven, um, you know, it, how can that come together? Um, and, and gradually he, he starts to realize that um, it's the union of, it's the development of our knowledge, our sight, our desire, our will, um, all these aspects of ourselves as they develop, they bring us together Um, into the oneness that ultimately um, joins the divine unity Um, yeah so reading the divine comedy particularly the paradise um, I think is um, I'd go so far as to say maybe it's the sort of the the pinnacle of um, the Christian expression of this mysterious unfolding Um, you know many others have got great insights and a genius in their own way at it Um, but um, I think I go so far as to say that you know when Jesus in John's gospel says there are truths which are too hard to bear um, but the spirit will reveal them that um, in Dante's divine comedy particularly the paradise these things are revealed um, and that that's why it's the texts um, that imaginatively gives and gives and gives and you read it again and you just get more out of it every time um, I could you know I'm it's wonderful um, it, it's a struggle it's hard but that's only because it requires your perception to develop in order to see its riches. Um, And, you know, whilst many people that try to engage with the divine comedy, you might say in the secular world, um, struggle with the paradise. And um, that, I think, only says something about the evolution of consciousness today, that we're often in this withdrawn state, um, which is more the state that's that's experienced, say, in the inferno, in hell. You know, in hell, Dante starts to realise that the reason why people stay there is not because they're condemned, so much as that they can't experience the present. They're either fixated on the past and what's happened, or they're preoccupied with the future and what's going to happen. And because they can't attend to their present, they can't change. Because it's only in the present that things change, that things evolve. Um, and you know, so that's in a way um, our conundrum today. I think you know we live in a world that. Um, that is particularly, I think, fixated on on the future. You know, the whole idea of progress um, and linear progress in particular. Um, It's it's the promissory note that science writes that it's going to understand all things one day. Um, And and, and the the great problem with that is that it's very hard to attend to the the experiencing that's going on now. Um, And when, when you can, as it were, withdraw your attention to that moment then I think it's stuff. Things start to open up, and you move from the inferno into the purgatory, um, where there's a purification that goes on, um, enabling you to enter in and rise into the heavens, like in the paradise. Um, it's amazing. It's a brilliant book.
0: Interesting. Um, w- one of the things that that made me think about as well is, you know, when how do you think this these transitions, you know, that we experience. You know, in terms of uh, in terms of how you conceptualize them, are are they things that we we that happen to us individually, um, or is is there some role to play for um, being part of collectives in terms of these um, transformations of consciousness? You know, is there um, is it is it something we kind of have to go alone on our by ourselves, or do you see? that there are communal practices or things that, that are, are coming back, you know, that maybe from the past that are, are helping to act as guides into the, into these kind of processes.
1: I mean, I mean, maybe to answer this personally, cause people will have different ideas about this because they'll have access to different communities. But, um, I think that the individual work is apps is basic that, and if you're not doing the work on yourself, um, and you're and, and, and trying to understand your own inner life more. Um, then you know that you you always risk spiritual bypassing, um, going for a peak experience for its own sake, say, um, rather than really understanding yourself. Um, but I think certainly you know I I, I work as a psychotherapist. So I kind of would say this, but I think there's huge benefit to to be accompanied on the way with this because you know, our capacity for delusion is very great and also just our capacity to feel stuck and not um, ha- have the imagination ourselves to, to to find a way out of the things that trap us. And that um, practices like psychotherapy, um, psychotherapy, thats the depth psychotherapy, I should say, psychotherapy means different things in different countries, I'm aware. I mean, in the UK, it tends to mean what's called psychodynamic psychotherapy, which is taking inner life very seriously and that means on the assumption that we don't understand our own inner life very well by ourselves. So that uh, with a psychotherapist um, that can unfold more. Um, it's it's not just sort of behavioral psychotherapy as a psychotherapy tent can mean I think more in the US. Um, so I think psychotherapy, so working with another can be very valuable. You know, people have spiritual directors, There's, there are other options here as well. Great teachers, um, that kind of thing. Um, for myself the collective practice now um it's a bit in the church um you know i think um the church of england which is the church that i know um it's not very good actually at personal development at the evolution of consciousness um it's a very caring institution it cares a lot about this world in terms of social justice um it still does wonder um it still preserves the great buildings of the medieval period and the great music of the medieval period um in in particularly in the gothic architecture um, and so is immensely valuable for that reason uh, because that is an a- imaginative experience to enter a great cathedral is an imaginative experience it is to 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 get some felt sense of the spiritual imagination that produced it. Um, but I don't myself I, it's very rare I think to find a church where that's enough on its own and and, and, and apart from the personal development um, I think also that what certainly the Church of England and Christianity, perhaps doesn't do very well is silence and so I also go along to um, the Buddhist Society here in London uh, for regular collective silence as well um, it's very simple um, in the sense that it's not for the Buddhist ritual at all none of nothing like that but what is so is that they know how to hold silence they know how to trust it how to stay with it um and that is a real art in itself i think it only comes out of real experience of silence too and so i find that um in, in, in at the buddhist society so go along there regularly for that too so there is a collective practice um as well as the personal and um, study in, i mean you know trying to speak about it trying to write about it that too is a practice as you know as well um so uh, that's a that's a collective enterprise you know it's good that you have people who want to listen and offer you feedback. And when you hear yourself speaking, you realize, well, you're not quite getting it right and so on. So that, that would be another important practice for me too.
0: Um, Sherry has a question in the chat. She's curious if you see any connection between Barfield and the writings of uh, George MacDonald, um, who was famously kind of uh, had a big influence on CS Lewis.
1: I just don't really know about that actually, Um, I just don't know. Um, uh, I think that, I mean, Barfield tended to say um, that amongst the Inklings um, he felt that he was a kind of fount of a lot of their ideas and that the relationship was that whilst he would provoke thought in them, um, they would then, particularly Tolkien and Lewis, would use their genius as writers to communicate it in different ways so I, I think he did actually feel that in terms of uh, inspiration, um, it was him offering inspiration that they then ran with, um, rather than him being particularly influenced um, by their thoughts, actually. He, he, he did say that, that that was the way it kind of worked.
0: Um, Quick question, Um, do you, have you, in terms of the reception of the book so far, have you seen any differences in terms of, I don't know, different strains of Christianity, whether it's, you know, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, or other, any, has there any, is there any nuances in the response that has given you more insight into those different traditions and where they're at right now in the, the modern landscape?
1: I don't know actually, I mean, it's, it's a bit too early to say, you know, the book is I think if, if it's going to um, have an impact, it's going to be through word of mouth really. Um, so I mean, I'm, I'm doing what I can uh, to give it a good nudge at its launch. Um, it's been out for, well, not even two months yet. Um, so I think it is going to be word of mouth. Um, and then maybe something of that will um, unfold. I mean, the only thing perhaps to say is that the CS Lewis community um, is is very well established. Obviously, it's massive, um, and my sense of that is that there's there's broadly speaking, you might say, two ways that people read Lewis, and um, and one love the apologist Lewis, um, which is a more conservative reading of Lewis, um, and they they love Lewis because he um, fills out what they believe to be the case, um, and 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 defends it as it were against the onslaughts of the modern world. Um, a more conservative readership of Lewis, um, but there's another readership of Lewis too, which love more the imaginative side of Lewis, um, that 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 see the note, for example, that Lewis doesn't really quote the Bible um, ever, um, and so get a sense that maybe Lewis is in the in as as much in the Christian tradition is reaching for a direct experience of the things of which the Christian tradition speaks, and so that direct experience matters to them more. Um, And I think that it's that latter group that are going to be more interested in Barfield because they'll see how Barfield's experience greatly shaped Lewis's perception. So for example, Lewis talks a lot about what he calls joy and joy for him is almost melancholic. Um, It's a kind of a sense of um, exaltation that was once had and is really desired again now. And I think that that makes sense when you think about Barfield's evolution of consciousness that I think Lewis realized through Barfield, that there had been a time when people experienced this flood and flow of meaning directly. And the great task was how to navigate it. Um, you know, it brings up its own problems when life is flooded with meaning. Um, but that, that that was the task then. Um, and that when Barf- when Lewis uses the word joy now, um, he's he's echoing back, he's remembering that former time and looking forward to um, a future participation when um, it's known fully once more, when we've become able able to experience, perceive, and navigate it once more. Um, so he, he 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 fills out a lot of key Lewis terms actually, um, and I think that I hope that there will be a, a group of people that um, will start to feel that Lewis expands more through their reading of Barfield and say their reading of my book.
0: Yeah, there, there's a great book. I think it's called uh, Barfield on C.S. Lewis. Have you ever read that? It's a collection of essays where Barfield kind of reflects on on the work of C.S. Lewis, and I, I found that book kind of helpful in terms of lining laying out where they kind of where the points of agreement were between them, and where kind of Barfield sees things quite a little differently.
1: It's it's it's, it's talks that Barfield gave, isn't it? When um, after Lewis died, because Lewis died in 1963, and Barfield mm-hmm. lives until 1997. And in fact, Barfield he had a kind of recovery in that period of his life, partly because his own writing returned, but also because he was invited, particularly to the US, to speak about Lewis. Everyone wanted to know about Lewis first, and then they wanted to know about Lewis's oppositional friend, i.e., Barfield himself. Um, and so, it, yeah, the, the, those a lot of those talks have been gathered together in this book, Barfield on C.S. Lewis. It's a good read because, partly because they're talks, you know, so their talks are often good introductions.
0: Sherry has a question here too. She says, uh, does Barfield identify the purpose of the the time in between original and final participation?
1: Yeah, so the purpose, it does have meaning. Our time does have meaning. Um, because although it's one characterized by a crisis of meaning and alienation, um, this is the moment where you almost you have to fall in on yourself. Um, but th- that is the moment where you start to discover yourself too. Um, you know, it's the, it's the dying that is, is, is the necessary precursor to rising. Um, that is very much the pattern. It's why Barfield's very Christian. Um, he doesn't just see us as it were stepping into a kind of universal consciousness, uh, rising without, first of all, descending. Um, the descending is absolutely the crucial step, because although it's often um, very, very difficult, you know, really uh, feels disastrous, really does feel like dying and suffering um, it's that which is necessary for us to gather our freedom to be able to enter into the rising um, and to know ourselves as ourselves in relation to the whole to the one Um, you know so in that sense it's a very different vision um, of enlightenment say from um, much older visions of enlightenment which I think were much more about the dissolution of the self and joining the universal consciousness you know this is in sort of pre-Buddhist Indian philosophy for example um, and you know it's it's still in some Buddhist traditions too um, it's not Nirvana as in snuffing out um, you know when is Bar- 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 quite interesting on this when he speculates about what um, might happen to doctrines like reincarnation which is so big in the east um, he doesn't really know um, himself directly, I don't think, but he does say that he thinks that the goal will um, not be to not be born, you know, because the point about reincarnation is not to be reborn, um, to, to to escape the wheel of samsara. Um, he, he wonders whether there'll be an evolution there too, and that um, there'll be a kind of combination with the Christian vision that actually it's a new creation, it's a new birth, um, which will be the goal of things. Um, a kind of a, a taking up of everything, not a snuffing out of things. Um, so th- these are you know, some of his speculations, but I, I suspect there's something in it.
0: Interesting, yeah. Th- your your conversation there about um, specifically the kind of um, death and rebirth um, and where we are now in that process um, made me think of, of, of in the book, you, you made some reference to the original kind of abrupt ending of Mark where the gospel kind of ends abruptly with the disciples having gotten some good news from, uh, an angel, but they're kind of left alone and they're, and they don't say anything to anybody cause they're afraid. So there's like this, they're kind of left in this kind of internal space of both, um, some sort of hopeful expectation of the future, but also having to deal with, um, kind of the anxiety of, of where they, they are right now. Um. Just, uh, uh, no, no. Sort of... I mean, I, I, I um, that, that's my sort of
1: spin on the famously abrupt ending of the Gospel of Mark, um, which I got also from Blake. Because I think when William Blake his his um his picture of the Marys at the tomb, um, that too I think is um, saying the same sort of thing. Um, yeah, it's it's in the it's in the these strange words which are recorded, like you know, "Do not cling to me," and why do you look here? Um, you know, these are very much moments, I think, when we're, when, when we're asked to step up, uh, not just to, to receive.
0: Josh has a question here. He says, can you speak on the idea of inversion and understanding and experiencing the world in modern psychotherapy? And then in parentheses, he has the ancient man feeling influenced by creation rather than feeling like it comes from within and it is projected outwards.
1: Yeah. um, I mean, if if I've understood correctly, um, I mean, to make a rather broad brush comment, I think that now when we feel flooded from the outside in is when we kind of have a breakdown. Um, And I think it's because um, the modern world um, has forgotten the old practices that enabled our forebears um, to live in this flood of meaning from the outside in, you know, the way that the whole of life was shaped by myths and symbols and rituals and libations and sacrifices and a sense of the seasons um, you know being alive um, and the heavens uh, pouring down their rays upon us and so on you know in the days of you know before certainly before the modern period, um, your whole life was immersed in practices and, and, and knowledge you might say wisdom that enabled you to navigate this outside-in flow of meaning. Um, we've lost that, too, you know, to a large degree anyway. Um, and But what we have gained and are gaining, I think, is a new wisdom about inner life um, through things like uh, psychology, um, but also through the development of the individual, the individual intellect, education more broadly, you might say, which focuses on the individual. Um, now it's, you know, it's not becoming automatically a kind of spiritual education now at all. That is, as we've been saying, that's the time we're in. Um, but I think that um, it's, it's the necessary step to a rediscovery of how to navigate and relate to um, the outside world once more. Um, you know, you get hints and nods of it. Again, I think the ecological crisis for all um, the worry there. Um, it's very interesting how it's kind of forcing us to think about the natural world in a different way. Um, so I think there are, there are hints and nods in science too. the kind of crises in science, like say how to understand quantum physics. Um, in physics um I, I don't want to rush particularly to a kind of quantum spirituality i think that's 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 running far too speedily um, but i think it, it is keeping us in this unknown space of not knowing quite why the science works even though it's very clear it does work um, and that's a you know very productive space of unknowing to be in
0: Well, I guess we're, we've gone on about an hour here. Um, I had, I had one last question from you, um, for you, if, uh, see if anybody else has any other questions before we go, but, um, I'm curious, you know, you, how is the process of writing this book changed you? Um, I know you probably had some sort of intimation of what you wanted to achieve in writing it. And I'm just curious, any surprises along this journey or anything that's come out of it that's, that's unexpected from what you, what you thought when you started first started the journey?
1: I mean, it was a struggle. And um, I began to read Barfield, um, for reasons we talked about before, I think, in our previous conversation, Mm -hmm. Um, because I understand Plato, particularly, actually, and, and then I realized that maybe he had something to say about Christianity that might be invigorating. um, And, yeah, a whole new perception of, of Christianity opened up through this sense of Jesus being this pivotal figure in the evolution of Western consciousness. Um, uh, that I, I, I had no idea about that before. And then what was really wonderful about writing the book is I felt I needed to write about this in my own way, for, you know, as much as I can from my own sense of things, not just recapitulating what others have said. And that led me particularly to look at the Bible as well as ancient Greek philosophy again. And I discovered that particularly in biblical criticism, a lot of the things which are said um, in that scholarship, are quite commensurate with Barfield's sense of things. Um, what happened to the to the ancient Israelites through the period of the exiles and so on, um, and what happened in the intertestamental period, um, in particular, um, it, it 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 felt to me like it was bridging worlds between sort of history and spiritual evolution, um, and that was great. You know, when I when I started to realise that, um, trying to. Trying to write a book is always about trying to write something coherent out of a lot of glimpses and and, and ideas and images and so on. So um, uh, that in itself is a kind of effort to form a consciousness, a sort of awareness, a perception of things that has some sort of uh, holding together. Um, again, particularly if you're trying to write it from your own heart, so that you you hope in your writing you show, uh, not just tell, um, and um, but it's, it's also launching me into a, a new um, uh, uh, sort of project, really, which I think is going to be Barfieldian in its spirit. Um, it's, broadly speaking, what I'm trying to do now is um, understand how spiritual growth works and compare that particularly to material growth. And um, I think, you know, we live in a world which is very, very defined by what it means to grow in material senses, um, accumulation, sort of physical knowledge, um, a kind of linear, progressive vision of what it is, um, but it's clearly inadequate, if not provoking crisis. And what I feel we've lost is what it might be to grow spiritually, which I think has a whole different kind of set of skills and logic um, and um, and consciousness to it. You know, a kind of awareness of what life is about. And so um, I'm 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 that's that's I'm just getting into that project now, um, and I hope that will produce you know. Um, maybe even a book at some point down the line um, because uh, it's something which um, we need to recover. But in Barfieldian spirit, we need to recover it with where we're at now from where we're at now. It's not just a regress. It's not just a return. It's not to spiritually bypass, but it is to try and incorporate um, what um, can be gained through the alienating experience too, because I think this is key to our freedom. Freedom is the guiding word i think for barfield he gets that from steiner i think it's in the bible too you know my favorite remark of jesus now more or less is um, my burden is light my burden is light it's like a kind of compass um that that when you feel that expansion that lightning um that uh, that that that's a sort of suggestion that you're on You're, you're pointed in the right direction um when it um when you feel you're getting overloaded morally demanded upon um all that you know that maybe there's periods like that, but ultimately it's not the right direction. Um, uh, so yeah, that, that that's something about what, what the book's done for me. I had no idea that it would take me in this direction, um, uh, but it looks like it is.
0: Very cool. Uh, one last question we have here is, um, what do you think about how virtue can help in the process of one's growth? And what what is the relationship it has to joy?
1: Yeah. Uh, Great question. I, and I, th- I think virtue is absolutely key because what virtue is about as opposed to morality is virtue is about who you are as a person. It's about your, your qualities, your, your characteristics. And that means it's about how you experience life. Um, I remember having quite a revelation one day when I actually heard a Buddhist teacher say that humility was about putting yourself in the lowest place because then like the sea, everything can flow into you. And immediately I thought this is a participative sense of humility. It's about being able to participate with all that's around you. Um, So virtue, I think, is key. And it's so different from morality because morality is about do's and don'ts. Ultimately, it's about what's right and wrong. Um, And that it's not bad necessarily, but it's too reduced. It, it, um, It doesn't ask you to expand your perception of things. It just asks you to sort of follow the rules. Um, and I, th- I think Christianity makes massive mistakes when it presents itself, wittingly or unwittingly, as a moral system um, because it it, it it hinders people's growth ultimately. Um, you know, you, you're not supposed to make mistakes whereas in virtue you always make mistakes but you make mistakes because you grow. Um, yeah, so I, I think virtue is really key um, to all this and, and, and one of the things which will, I hope, you know, kind of happen um, is that, we'll, that virtue tradition will start to return as well and um, it's got rather eclipsed with utilitarianism particularly in the modern world but even deontological ethics as it's called and um, the kind of um, this is what you ought to do this is what i must do um, you know that, that that that's what way too strong in christianity in my experience um, we need to get much lighter with all that you know look to the parables and realize that most of the parables are amoral or immoral they're trying to show us something completely different, you know. Paul and I talked about this in our last conversation. Um, yeah, it, it, it's really key, I think, virtue.
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting point. Um, something I hadn't really thought about. It's, I think it seems like with it, with virtue, it's more about kind of like as you said, how you're tuned to experience things, the kind of direction you're facing, and. And that's more important than the kind of facts of the situation and what actually happens. It's more about, um, like as you said, in some sense necessarily, if you are growing, you're you're consistently putting yourself into areas where you will almost necessarily fail because you're 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 ex- there's this expansion of of your capabilities that um, you know more more and more challenging circumstances are gonna you're gonna fail before you succeed. That's, that's really interesting. Oh.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's part of dying and rising. I think it's also the spiritual meaning, the deeper meaning of, of remarks like the first will be last and the last will be first and so on. Um, you know, it's, it, 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 when these remarks are read as um, dynamic indicators rather than sort of static inversions, um, you know, that's, that's what you want to look for. You want to follow the energy. Again, this is, you know, back to what we were saying before, when, when you can see and, and know these things as about the experience in itself, then you know that you're in the present moment. You're in the moment where things can change. Um, when they're read as rules, um, as it were, fixing things, um, that's when nothing actually changes.
0: Very interesting. Okay, I think this is probably a good place to end. Any any last thoughts you have before we uh, before we head out here?
1: Well, just to say thank you both to you. Um, uh, and to those who've been asking questions and so on um, because it it does help me as well to to, to sort of to have to think about these things and join a few more dots. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I mean, no doubt, like everyone who's listening, I think this really matters as well. So um, I hope it helps sort of spread the word
0: um, too. Agreed. And, and thank you for, for joining and uh, just everybody out there Um, You can get Mark's book on Amazon. He actually has, there's a Kindle version of it, there's a hard copy version, and there's also an audiobook that's that's read by him. Um, And I actually have all three, because I I bought the Kindle when it first came out, and then realized uh, I, I have a hard time reading these days, so I got the audio version so I can listen while I'm doing other things and working out, and you were so kind to send me a physical copy, so... Um, but, uh, it, it's a really great book and I, I have to recommend, uh, that folks check it out because, um, it's, I think if you kind of go at Barfield alone without a guide, um, it's, uh, it's, most people that I've talked to have found it a little bit challenging. And I, I think this does give you, if you have some interest in Barfield, there's certainly, uh, this is a kind of a good starting place, um, for, for, for starting that journey so um, much, uh, Mike. I really
1: appreciate
0: you saying that. Thank you. Yeah, it was, I, I've really enjoyed the book, and uh, I've, I'm I'm kind of still gnawing at it because there's there's quite a bit in it, um, especially in that last chapter, as I mentioned, where it says we, we need to be mystics. I think primarily because um, for myself, it's um, there's some sort of hurdle there in terms of venturing into that mystical world, and I think it uh, perhaps I'm. I try to have problems solved before I go into them. And, and in that mystical space, that's certainly not something that can be done. There's not like a kind of rational, reasonable uh, sort of ladder you can build for yourself to, to go through it step by step. There's some sort of kind of leap of faith or something of that nature. So, um, But yeah, I've, I've really found the book very helpful in terms of, I guess, coming to some sort of realization about how important um, this is, as, as you just pointed out. Yeah. Awesome. Well, well, thanks again so much. and uh, I'm gonna end the recording here.